I tend to gravitate towards the Italian philosophy of kind of not really doing too much to really good produce. If you've gone to the trouble of sourcing really good, good quality products, then you shouldn't have to do too much to make them shine. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. We've talked about how regional dining is finding its voice, where particular regions have found a sense of place on the plate that speaks of the region. But what of the capitals? Are there restaurants that, for instance, speak of Melbourne or of Sydney? James Green is the executive chef of Manta Restaurant and Bar and Molo Wine Bar on Sydney's Oolamaloo Wharf. James, how are you? Hi, Huck. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. Uh, you got a restaurant, or you're working at a restaurant down at Woolamaloo on the wharf there, which is um, couldn't be any more Sydney, perhaps. Um, what's it like there at the moment? Um, coming into a, to winter, it's died off a little bit. I mean, it's been very, very, very busy since we since we started really um, opening after after the COVID lockdowns. Um, but it's been a, a big learning experience, I think, for us all. And you know, in terms of building a team and everything, we're we're slowly getting there. You uh, did your apprenticeship on the wharf, and um, all these years later, you're now um, the executive chef, albeit of a different restaurant on the wharf. How different is it now compared to back then? Um, honestly, I was I was very very green back then, starting at Otto, um, as I guess all young cooks are. Um, so I sort of, to me, it doesn't it doesn't feel that um, different, I suppose. Um, as a first year apprentice, I mean, there's only so much I think you take in. You're a little bit overwhelmed. The the wharf, as we mentioned, is sort of really speaks of Sydney. Do, do you do you feel an obligation as a, as a restaurant that's considered like you know a real voice for Sydney and a, a sort of typical Sydney restaurant or expression of a restaurant? There is that something you feel and um, are concerned with? Um, it's something I definitely try not to think about, um, but. Um, <laughs> But thanks for putting it in my head anyway. Um, <laughs> but no, I just tend to sort of respect the the clientele's taste there. It's coming to, to learn that over the course of well, the first year at least and just trying to put my imprint slowly on, on the menu and, and sort of put my style in in a way that works for the, for the venue. You've got a wonderful uh, focus on seafood there, and I, I want to explore that side with you in a little while. But uh, take us back to when you were young. What, what was food like for you and your family? Um, well, food with a family as a kid, it was it was pretty simple. I mean, we didn't really have family recipes or that have been handed down through generations or anything like that. I mean, I grew up on on Lord Howe Island, so it was a a pretty idyllic childhood in a lot of ways, you know, like uh, a school uniform. You didn't have to wear school uh, shoes to school and you still don't. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, people didn't lock their doors or leave and they left keys in their cars and all that kind of stuff. So as kids, we were pretty much allowed to just roam free. You know, um, TV wasn't really a thing. We only got ABC. Um, <laughs> so it was a lot of outdoors. Like I fell in love with fishing and, and that, that kind of thing in a very early age. I mean, I remember um, as, a, as a kid, you know, calling up the, the charter operators uh, the night before they were like, on a Friday night or something, asking if they were going, you know, I'll bring my own rod, you know, can I come along? And there was a few of them that, that really took them under my wing. So it was a, a pretty cool, cool childhood like that. But um, my um, – my mum's um, a really good cook um, who doesn't probably give herself enough credit for it. She's, um, but, you know, really kind of simple, simple stuff. But um, 
My dad's also a bit of a, a jack of all trades. So when I was growing up, he had a, a butcher shop. So we used to um, serve the local island beef as well. So we'd um, shoot that in the paddock and butcher it and, you know, I'd do all that kind of stuff, you know, making sausages. So I was helping out there a lot as a kid. Um, and I think that gave you a, a decent appreciation at a, a young age of kind of exactly what the sacrifices are to put meat on the table and, and builds up a level of respect for produce. You mentioned uh, the seafood and the fishing charters of that region. There's some, some extraordinary seafood there. Is, was there any sort of prize catch when you were young in regards to seafood? Um, our kingfish is the the big one on Lord Howe. Um, but there's there's such a big variety that I guess only in the last 20 years, people have really started to unlock it a little bit, you know, with the deep, deep species like flametail snapper and rosy jobfish but then you've also got the pelagic fish like tuna and wahoo which is wahoo is one of my favorite fish to cook for sure what, what was your first sort of insight into the world of hospitality um my dad opened up a cafe when i was probably about 13 or 14 and so i sort of started just helping out there um, started washing dishes and then making pizzas and sort of doing some basic food stuff. And I, I always really enjoyed it and school holidays and everything. Um, but, yeah, so I, I always knew I, I really enjoyed it. But um, it sort of wasn't really on my radar as a, as a career. Um, I went to, to uh, boarding school up in Armadale um, and, you know, I sort of listened to, to teachers as well. Um, they were pushing me to do a university degree in commerce or something along those lines. And I ended up um, getting into a, a commerce degree at UNSW, um, which majored in hospitality and tourism, which kind of made sense to me given my, my background on Lord Howe, but that was kind of the only real thought I ever put into it. <laughs> so... <laughs> I remember getting yeah, a year and a half or so in and just realizing it was just a fast track to me hating my life, <laughs> my working life. And so I just ended up thinking, well, you know, I've always really enjoyed cooking. Let's, let's do that. So I, um, I started in the kitchen properly under, under James Kidman at Otto. Wow. Well, I want to jump into the kitchen at Otto there, but just take us back to the cafe that your dad opened. Do you, do you have any stories of what it was like working with your dad? And did, did you learn anything from, from that period of time from him? Um, yeah, a little bit. It was a, I think it was a bit of a learning period for both of us. I mean, that was a, the first cafe he'd, he'd ever opened. Um, it was quite um, minimalist and, and very, I guess, rustic, you'd, you'd say. <laughs> but um, in later years, um, about when I was about 22 or so, um, he demolished the old building and rebuilt it. So it had a bakery underneath um, a kitchen. So I did some bakery shifts. Um, and I was there for, for a couple of years after, after my initial stint in Sydney before I went overseas. So I, I learned a hell of a lot and it's, it's been a really good, um, really good foundation. I think you mentioned James Kidman and, and Otto and that sort of couple of years in Sydney. Uh, what, what was that period of time like for you after that upbringing on Lord Howe? You're in a big city and, um, do you have any stories from that time as you were sort of learning your craft? Um, I think I went into it, you know, very, very green as, as most first year apprentices are. Um, and I was painfully slow. Um, I know because they told me over and over again, <laughs> um, but it was a really good foundation. I think, I, um, James Kidman's really good with about teaching workflow and, you know, teaching a lot of basics. So I learned a lot of the, the fundamental skills like shucking oysters, plating salads to searing scallops and, 
you know, making some purees and, and we even had a, a twice baked souffle on the menu, which learning how to make was, was unreal as well. Um, that's obviously a very busy place, but I feel like I took a lot away from it. And after about a year, I ended up going up to just up the hill, actually closer to where I was living at the time to Fratelli Paradiso. How different was that kitchen compared to uh, Otto down on the wharf? Um, yeah, I mean, Otto has a, a fairly big kitchen and, and everything and quite a big staff. Um, Fratelli's kitchen is about the size of a postage stamp. So, <laughs> um, but because it was so small, like I learned a lot in a very short time because you kind of had to. I mean, you, you weren't relying on other people to do things for you. You had to just sort of just dig in and do it yourself. I mean, it's a busy little place, small team. Like, so I was on pasta station most of the time. So I just really, really enjoying just cranking out a six burner, six burners full of pasta for, for six hours during service. You, you mentioned going back to Lord Howe Island to, to work. Why did you go, go back there and... Um... Tell us about that period. Um, so, as I said before, the, the cafe that my dad had started, he'd sort of knocked it down, rebuilt it, and did the, the bakery and everything. And I just sort of felt the need to, to come home and sort of help out, get the business on its feet. Um, I mean, staffing on, on the island is, is a challenge anyway. It's a lot of sort of really transitional people that are there for a couple of months and that's it. So, it's good to have a couple of constants um, throughout there. Um, the head chef, um, Dave Klumsky, who was oddly enough from Otto, um, was amazing. I mean, he's still there today. Um, we're really good mates now, but he really kind of took what I'd learned over the, the past, you know, almost two years and then was able to kind of just push me a bit and, and really taught me to cook over the space of a couple of years. You headed overseas to Toronto as well and spent a bit of time in the, in the US. What sort of impact did that experience have on you? Um, I loved it. I mean, the, the couple of years I spent in Toronto and, um, uh, the the stage in in New York at WD50 was, um, yeah, just in, incredible memories. But it's also kind of formed the basis of how I, I think about food in a lot of ways today, and how I sort of approach approach things. Um, it was a little bit of a, a lottery choosing Toronto. I don't really know how it ended up that way. <laughs> I was just it was in my head. It was between oh, I either want to go to the UK or Canada, um, and the UK didn't hold that much of appeal. Um, from the, I wanted to kind of get away from everything and not be sort of surrounded in a kitchen with 10 Australians. It's kind of defeating the purpose. Um, and the same sort of for Vancouver. So Toronto kind of stood out for me in, in that regard. And then once I just sort of moved there on a whim, really. Um, and then the first job that I had there, I'd sort of, I'd got a, an apartment to live in and I just sort of Googled um, the top 10 restaurants in Toronto and there was a, a place called Centro, which wasn't too far from where I was living. It's just a couple of, of subway stops away. Um, and so I applied there. It was Italian. It was in number seven. I think it was in the top 10 at the time. Um, and so I just, I ended up there and I've, it's just, that were the kind of younger, wilder days. I think, I mean, I remember days starting at, you know, eight in the morning, finishing at midnight. Then we'd all think it was a great idea to head to the bar until, you know, the very early hours and then do it all again. Um, but I made a number of lifelong friends there as well. So I think it was a, a really good introduction to living overseas and sort of making a, a home away from home. How important is, is that sort of um, working overseas for a chef and, and the impact that it has like coming home? How important is that for you? I think it was it was great for me, and I'd encourage 
basically anyone to do it. I mean, to be able to get away completely from your comfort zone. So you, you've got nothing to sort of rely on. It's sort of a little bit sink or swim, I guess, in some ways, but I mean, it's, it's, I guess you'd call it character building, but I, um, I'd really encourage anyone to do it. What brought you back to Australia? Uh, my visa ran out, oddly enough. That was the only, only real thing. Um, but yeah, so I, I did nearly a year at Centro and while I was there, I'd applied for a few stages at restaurants in the US. Um, I never heard back from, from some of them. Some said they were full or they weren't accepting stagiaires, but um, I ended up with um, a couple of months at WD50 in New York, which was um, in, absolutely incredible, to be honest. Tell us about some of the dishes that you, you were cooking there. Is there any that sort of stand out that you uh, from your time? Um, there's a couple, even just making the, the really iconic dishes like you know the eggs benedict with the deep fried hollandaise um you know made deep fried mayonnaise for events and that kind of stuff um but then i also worked a lot on r&d for for some new dishes um like doing trial after trial after trial trying to make noodles out of lobster roe and, and that kind of things are a little bit bizarre but um as the culture that they created there was was incredible like everyone was asked their opinion on how to make things better and you you're just expected to be engaged and to give feedback which was i think was really really inspiring when you came back to australia what what what, what were some of the real sort of key um venues for you as you started to climb the ladder um when i came back to australia um probably icebergs was was a big one for me um I've been a big fan of Monty since he was at, at Bacass all those years back and I really admired the way he kind of worked and developed the, the relationships with producers and translated that to, to the plate. I thought it was, was extraordinary. I really, really loved his style. You worked on a project called Q Station way up there in Manly on the north side of Sydney. How different was that compared to the likes of um, Bondi Beach and, and Woolloomooloo? Um, it was very, very different, to be honest. I mean... It's a hotel which was put over, I don't even know how many hectares. It was, um, so I started there under, Matt Kemp was the executive chef when I started. And so I came in to, to run the restaurant, uh, Boiler House. Um, but then after a year, year or so, Matt moved up to the Byron at Byron and moved out of Sydney. And I ended up as the executive chef running the, the conferencing and events and all sorts of stuff, as well as the restaurant and everything else. So it was a, a big learning curve and learning how to manage a team when you're not physically there the entire time was, was uh, a big you know, a big learning curve, I suppose. What was your food like at that time? Do you have a dish or two that sort of uh, exemplifies that period of time for you as you were sort of growing in that executive chef role? Um, was, we ended up going to like a, a, a turning the restaurant to like a share plate thing. So the menu changed quite a lot. But the one that really sticks out for me, we used to do a um, a 48-hour braised short rib that was we glazed with a, a ketchup manis and um, hot English mustard glaze. So it was like a soy mustard um, and served on a smoked eggplant puree. And it kind of the garnish has changed a little bit throughout the season, but that was kind of the, the core of it. And that's probably one of my favourite dishes I've ever, I've ever done. <laughs> Seafood's always been important to you from from growing up, but for the last couple of years, it's been a real focus for you uh, career-wise with North Bondi Fish and and now Manta. Um, Take us back to North Bondi Fish. Um, What was it like uh, with a really seafood-focused restaurant for you? Um, It was kind of what I'd 
really wanted um, when I was looking to, to move on from, from Q Station. I mean, I'd always been really seafood focused in what I was interested in. Um, and I admired Matt Moran as well for a long time. I mean, I think I've still got a copy of the, the first book, his first book that he, he signed for me all these all years ago. I think he had a good food um, show when I was an apprentice. But so coming on board as head chef there it was, uh, I think, a little surreal. Um, but when I, I took over there, there hadn't been a head chef in the venue for a couple of months, but the, the two sous chefs had it running very, very smoothly. So it was quite seamless um, as a transition in, in those re- that respect. What were you cooking there? Can you um, give us an example of, you know, some of the seafood that you were really sort of showcasing? Um, yeah, so I was quite um, pared back. I mean, a big group like Solitel, they've got that, the very firm idea of the kind of narrative that they want for the venue, like very simple preparations and uncomplicated, like bright flavors. So it was a bit of an adjustment getting my head around that. Like, um, but I remember doing a, um, a tuna tartare with uh, an XO. Um, so during the first lockdown in 2020, I went back to, to Lord Howe and we had all these fish scraps from a, a day and I ended up trying to work out how to make an XO from, from all the, the leftover waste waste um so i brought that back and we did a, a tartare with with an xo dressing which was really really good um and the other one i really remember is we did a um quite simple but just a, a kingfish crudo just with cherry vinegar and olive oil and some pickled cherries um just worked so well and it's just so vibrant and summery Tell us about that transition from North Bondi Fish to Manta. How, how did the gig come about and, and what was it like leaving the Solitel group? Um, well, sort of through a friend, I'd been sort of asked if I was interested in the, the exec pos- position at Manta. And sort of the more I thought about it, I kind of felt like it was a, an opportunity that I would have regretted not exploring. Um, I wasn't unhappy at, at North Bondi Fish in, in any way, way, shape or form, but it was sort of a, an opportunity came along that I thought I'd be a little bit silly not to, not, to, um, not to explore. What's the access to seafood like for you in this role compared to the previous role? Um, well, our owner, Rob, has got a, um, a seafood co-op in Port Stephens, um, so we buy a lot of our produce directly off the boats. You know, I'll get a, a call when the, the long liners and trawlers come in and, I kind of get to pick and choose um, what fish we get to going to use for the week. You know whether there's, you know, what fish is in better condition. You know if they've caught yellowfin or albacore or swordfish or you know snapper, flounder, anything like that. Um, and so we're really trying to push that kind of trawler to plate philosophy as much as possible. Um, and being able to to pick and choose straight off straight off the boat and getting it that fresh, it's it's a privilege that that takes me back to Lord Howe when, you know, the fishermen come in with all their, their catch on ice and you, you get to sort of pick and choose what you what you want to buy. Um, and we also work with an abalone diver up there. Um, so he harvests abalone and sea urchin for us, um, which is an amazing connection as well. Um, we're also buying oysters direct from the farm up in Lemon Tree Passage. So we're trying to utilise that connection as much as possible. Willamaloo Wharf is an incredibly busy uh, dining precinct. Give, give us a sense of the the scale uh, at Manta. You know, what's what sort of volume of seafoods going through, and how many staff does it take to pull it together? Um, well, we kind of opened into that that kind of post COVID madness um, in the end of October, and the volume really did take me by surprise. I mean, there's weekends where we would be selling 300 portions of barramundi and 300 eye fillet. And- <laughs> 
you know, 40 kilos of, of other fillet for, for fish and everything like that. And, you know, 50 lobsters a week isn't out of the question some weeks. So it's the volume really, um, really did surprise me. It's, it's amazing. We could fill up the, the cool room till we almost couldn't walk in it on a, on a Saturday morning. And by Sunday we're like, well, better try and go to the fish market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get a delivery. <laughs> uh, many people uh, go to restaurants to to eat seafood, seafood and leave it in the capable hands of the chef. What, what sort of tips do you have um, in regards to cooking seafood? Um, I tend to gravitate towards the the Italian philosophy of kind of not really doing too much to really good produce. Um, I kind of feel like if you've if you've gone to the trouble of sourcing really good good quality products, then you shouldn't have to do too much to make them shine. And anything you do is just small little little things to, to complement them in various ways. But cooking it simply, I think, is always the key. Give us a couple of examples of that. What are you loving cooking at the moment that sort of speaks to that ethos you're talking of? A um, couple of my favourite snacks on the – or snacks and dishes on the, the Manta menu at the moment. We've got um, – uh, tuna tartare as a, a snack we serve it on a little rice cake and we just make a, a like a, a lemon koshu almost like a, a fermented chili and, and lemon zest and salt and make a dressing from that um, so it's kind of a nice light vibrant um, sort of way to awake the palate at the start of a meal um, and then um, probably my favorite dish on the menu is the the toothfish at the moment um, so we glaze it glaze it in miso um, and just serve it on a, a caramelized apple puree with a little bit of cabbage and some hazelnuts. And that's legitimately it. But I mean, the richness of the fish against the, the sweet sour puree and the, the freshness and texture of the cabbage and hazelnuts is, um, it's probably my favorite dish on the menu at the moment. What, what are the challenges of your role? Such a busy restaurant and such an iconic location. Um, what, what's some of the challenges that you find to make a real success of what you're doing? Um, I've, we've, come a, a number of challenges over the last last year or so i mean taking over a, a very established kitchen i think the, the previous exec and, and head chefs had been there for 14 and 11 years respectively i think so that's difficult in and of itself but i mean we've also got a lot of guests coming to manta that whole time they've, they've got particular tastes they're used to having certain certain dish off menu dishes that everyone needs to learn and we had a break so learning all those those intricacies and it took some time for sure. Um, but there's also certain signatures like the the Spanish crab lasagna. It's been on the menu for for 15 years or so. It's a it's a sentimental favourite that's not leaving the menu. So just learning how to respect that and then put your own um, input in there as well without upsetting the apple cart too much. I think is is it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, you mentioned that there's some off-menu dishes that everyone had to learn. I'm fascinated by by that. Is there is there one that you can uh, tell us about that's the secret off-menu dish? Um, yeah, it does ideally require a pre-order. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, as, uh, one of our, our regulars um, loves to have a, a lobster salad, and so we um, cook and chill the lobster and, and toss that with um, – like a, a little bit of brown butter emulsion and uh, you know some some cucumber and eschalots and and fresh herbs and stuff and then serve it back in the shell. Um, so it takes a little bit of time when it it comes up in the middle of service, but we 
tend to to spot the the name and the reservations and kind of have one ready to go. <laughs> Having grown up on Lord Howe with you know family in butchery and cafes and kind of a foot in the food industry in that way, um, what do they think about what you're achieving in Sydney? Um, I think they're fairly proud, to be honest, of of how far I've come from and from where we we started as well. Um, I said it's not a, a huge food culture in in my family or in a long term like a long-standing tradition kind of thing but um yeah they're they're really happy what do you love about what you do i tend to get most satisfaction out of the creative process from sort of taking a raw ingredient and taking it through the steps and arriving at the finished dish that's sort of where my wheelhouse is in terms of enjoyment mostly um and then obviously putting it on the menu and having people enjoy it, I think is it's what's what every chef really, really loves. Well, you've been in the role a little while now and society sort of, you know, back, back in motion. What, what are you most looking forward to with the role as we move forward into summer? Um, well, we're currently closed for a couple of weeks for some renovations. Um, so we will sort of having a bit of a, a reset and the dining room's getting a bit of a spruce up, getting some new equipment in the kitchen. Um, but it'll be, it'll be really good to come back with um, the team having a little bit refreshed. We come back on hopefully around the 15th of July um, and then we'll just continue to, to build into summer and, and hopefully be in a, a better spot staff-wise than we were this time last year. Well, James, it's great to catch up with you. Look forward to seeing what Manta looks like um, as it gets a bit warmer. Uh, loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Perfect. Thank you very much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.